Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, March 11th. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers, Christian Ryan, Mike Tassoni, Ben, one year into COVID, buddy. Happy anniversary. Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's crazy, right? Like I was, I was down there when it all hit last year and uh, it was this very, very stressful period of time, rearranging flights and just reassessing our entire worldview, really. Yeah, and it's funny actually talking to players now about it kind of a year in the rear view and uh because i remember at that time you know everybody's kind of being careful about what they say and nobody really knows what's happening and now players are straight up coming out and being like yeah i don't know why we went to Bradenton and played that game <laughs> like we were all talking with each other like why are we on this bus what are we doing right now well yeah it's amazing just like how little we knew then and how much more we know now you know we joke sometimes maybe about how everyone's like now this amateur epidemiologist but i mean compared to where we were 12 months ago, we had no idea, right? And like, even until those final days, I remember I, one of the last interviews I did in like real life in person, I was standing six feet away from Danny Jansen. And then it was, okay, this is this is really safe though. Like this is like, and it almost <laughs> felt at the time, like even though we were you know, pretty much face to face and you know, surrounded by lots of people, we didn't have any of those social distancing measures in place. And yet even then it felt like, okay, we're really being careful here, but that's how quickly things were changing this time a year ago well buddy flash forward to about a month from now even less than a month really and the toronto blue jays are going to be in arlington texas to play the rangers at the rangers home opener before a full house i don't know that they've like officially sold all the tickets yet but got a pretty good feeling they're gonna sell that place out and it should be i assume the first north american sporting event at full capacity in a year, you know, Texas opens right back up and, uh, you know, basically runs like the world's largest vaccine effectiveness case study. What do you think? The Toronto Blue Jays are going to be uh, <laughs> part of history in about a month. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are a lot of ways we can go with this one. I think, you know, look, from a public health standpoint, it seems unsafe to me. I'm not going to go on a rant about it. It seems unsafe. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, I agree with you, man. Like, I, it's it's just kind of wild, but like, it's the it's the United States, right? You know, it's funny. Like, doing this job now from my kitchen table, essentially, like, I spend quite a bit of time on the phone with Americans. Like, just about every day, like, I'm on the phone with an American, or there's somebody who's, who's in Florida, or if you know, I'm working on something and it's somebody who's in Texas or somebody who's in California or whatever. It's just different, man. Like the approach to the pandemic and to mitigation efforts and to protocols, like it's just a complete 180. Even talking to, you know, people in the Blue Jays organization who had been like with, you know, in Toronto, like throughout, um, I don't know, some parts of the pandemic, they go down there and it's like a, a totally different world. Like nobody talks about it. Like everybody's just living their lives like normal. Um, and, you know, being here in Toronto as you and I have been for the last 12 months, like, I, you know, we kind of lose our perspective on the fact that, the United States is approaching this a little bit differently, Texas in particular, right? Like there is not going to be a mask mandate in Texas. And at these games, the way I understand it under this executive order is that it's like it's up to every business to sort of set their standards for whether or not you wear a mask. And the way I understand it is Texas Rangers have said, yes, everyone has to wear a mask at these games unless you are consuming food or drink. And what do you do throughout nine innings of a baseball game? but consume food or drink constantly get a bag of peanuts and a beer and you could just have your mask off the entire time 
And even beyond that, are you going to expect these like underpaid ushers to be going around policing this? Like, how are you possibly going to keep 45,000 people, you know, as soon as a mask drops below the beneath the nose, somebody's going to scurry over there and, and tell them to, to pull it back up. It's just not realistic or reasonable to expect an usher to, to be doing that. So we'll see, man. We'll see how this super spreader event plays out. It's the Wild West. No, no question about that. I mean, I will say like talking to people in the US, friends or you know, obviously through work for baseball stuff, it's very different also in terms of the vaccination availability and progress, which, you know, I, I guess I have this weird mix of like being partly really happy for those people and for, for the US in general and also partly kind of jealous and you're just kind of <laughs> sitting here like, man, that would be so nice to be able to be at that point. But it's great. Obviously, we want as many people to be vaccinated as possible. That is part of the equation where there is quite actually a good rate of vaccination happening in the US. Super encouraging to see that. Hopefully, Canada follows soon. You know, it's been a long year. It's been a challenging year, obviously. I think that's an understatement. Probably every single person listening would would agree with that. And so, you know, the, the vaccinations cannot come soon enough. And hopefully, stadiums can be full of vaccinated people at some point in the relatively near future. Yeah, Texas is going to show us just how effective these vaccines are against new variants, right? This is the biggest case study anybody's ever run. I don't want to like make light of it, right? Like a lot of people have died of this. And like, you're right, like it is very, you know, encouraging the rate of vaccinations in the United States and the way that they have poured a ton of resources and money into this and, and rolled them out. But this comes after half a million deaths. It's like that the quote, right? Like one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody has just been completely desensitized to it. Like a lot of people have died in the United States of COVID-19. In Texas, 46,000 people have died of COVID-19. That's like the population of North Bay, you know, like just wiped out. So, and you're still seeing like 5,000 new cases a day, 200 deaths a day. And like, I know people are like tired and sick of the numbers, but that's also kind of like part of the fatigue and the desensitization of it all. Like it's still, you know, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, just from our perspective in Toronto, watching this is even just going to be a little weird just to see that many people in close quarters masked, not masked, you know, high-fiving, sharing the same space and the same air in Texas there. Like I've seen it a little bit, like I watch a lot of rugby. So I've seen it uh, like in New Zealand, um, you know, some of the rugby over there, like, you know, New Zealand did a great job of like stamping out COVID-19, which obviously is a bit easier to do when you're an island in the the middle of the ocean. But, you know, so they've had packed houses for rugby games there. And it's been even just a little strange, like, like seeing that, but, you know, seeing it for a baseball game, even like think about, you know, the all the protocols that players and staff are going through, like 110 page operations manual and all this stuff that players and staff are being asked to do. Meanwhile, all these Blue Jays players and staff are now going to enter into that stadium where there is this massive super spreader event occurring all around them as they're playing. You know, it's just going to stand in sort of stark contrast to how careful players and, and staff and coaches are expected to be. That's right. Yeah, the standard is is pretty high for those people, for sure. And I think you're right, too, when it comes to the desensitization, right? Because at first, when this first started happening, like it was shocking. I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that it was totally just disarming and unsettling and shocking. And with that, there's a bit of a thrill, like not a good thrill, but it's really stimulating, too. And you're kind of overwhelmed, as I think everyone was when this whole thing started. And then as a year goes on, like, 
it's just not quite as shocking. Like you're not as overwhelmed by it. And so it does become normalized, even if people are dying the entire time. It's going to be interesting to see how some of the season plays out. And a lot of it's going to depend on whether players and staff and coaches can get vaccinated in spring training before everybody kind of departs and heads out and starts traveling and getting on flights and being at you know, a ballpark in Texas where there's like 40,000 people. If everybody is able to get vaccinated during spring training, I think that'll be pretty huge. If not, you know, you just have to look at what happened in MLB last year with the Marlins and with the Cardinals. You can look at what's happened in with the various outbreaks in the NBA and the NHL and the NFL. There are going to be outbreaks in MLB if, you know, if vaccinations are not pervasive across MLB. Like they, this is going to happen again. It is inevitable. And that'll lead to more postponements and cancellations and makeup doubleheaders and the uncertainty. And you could have another Marlins situation. Remember last year how insane that was, where they were just like trying to find 26 dudes to put into their clubhouse and they were, you know, making endless waiver claims and, uh, you know, just picking guys out of indie ball and stuff. That's going to happen again if you don't get some some needles and arms by the end of spring training so i know nobody wants to hear about this right like i know nobody wants to talk about it and every look the weather's getting nicer and you know sunny days ahead and it's baseball and and it's it's hopeful and optimistic i get it but it is still very much a reality of what mlb is trying to do right now for sure it's still a pandemic they're still trying to play baseball i mean yeah. they're they're doing more travel this year than they did last year, right? Like we had the kind of divisional setup last year. Where it was East, Central, West, essentially three leagues just structured differently. Now they're going back to the full thing and we'll see where, where it all lands. I don't think that teams are going to be vaccinated when the season starts. And even once vaccines are available, some will choose not to take it. So that will factor as well. Yeah, we shall see. All right, I want to talk a little baseball. Uh, Nate Pearson is kind of probably the biggest kind of name to watch at Blue Jays camp right now, just as far as an, an availability standpoint. Obviously, it came down with that groin issue. Well, it, it was like it was about a week ago that we found out about it, but it actually happened like a week and a half ago. Yeah. And I think that a lot of his sort of rest period or recovery period sort of took place like before we were even aware of the injury, which is kind of another symptom of not being down there and not, um, you know, like the Toronto Blue Jays just have a lot more control over the flow of information and just have a lot more control over the access to information and what we're even able to, to learn via text messages up here and phone calls and things like that. So, you know, Nate Pearson was back like playing long toss. It seems pretty quickly, but I think he had a, a nice little bout of rest there after the groin injury. It's been up to 120 feet. I'd expect he's going to throw a bullpen this weekend, likely assuming everything continues to go well, but still up against it for opening day, Ben, you know, unless he was going to be pitching out of the Blue Jays bullpen, but I don't think that is at all what's going to happen here. I think the Blue Jays are going to build him up as a starter. So I would say most likely scenario, Nate Pearson's open the year on the IL, or he is like being held back for, you know, the sixth start of the year. Agreed. Yeah. That sixth start of the year, start of the year might be the kind of early point that he could debut. I don't think that you're seeing him on day two or day three of the season at this point. And they're going to be cautious. I mean, if you're if you're the Blue Jays, like you're certainly not expecting 180 innings from Pearson anyway. So, I mean, yeah. you're going to have him rest his arm at some point in the season. This is not when they want it to happen. They would much rather he was ramping up right now and getting ready. But if he needs to rest his groin and make sure that he's not straining it anymore, this is the time to do it and get him ready and... And see where it leads. I mean, it's not good. You know, it's not, nobody wants this. But at the same time, this is a chance now for Stephen Matz and Ross Stripling to step in, 
go from kind of being competing for those final rotation spots to essentially being in those final rotation spots behind Ryu, Roark, and Ray. And we'll see where that that group leads the Blue Jays as they start the season. I think this is a good time to kind of remind people that like any time a conversation starts with, you know, Nate Pearson and innings limit, you can just disregard everything else that's said because there's not an innings limit. The days of arbitrary innings increases and innings limits, like it's over. Teams long, long ago realized, oh yeah, innings are actually a measure of outs and not a measure of workload. And not all innings are created equal. Uh, and we have all of these cool, uh, they're not even new tools really, but like tools have been around for like 10 years where we can measure spin rate and arm angle and release point. And we can actually Velocity. get this guy in a... Yeah. Yeah, we velocity, obviously. We get this guy in a catapult wearable. You'll see in a lot of these photos, the guys who are wearing like mm-hmm. kind of the bibs with the little like technology on the like the height of their back. That is measuring like how far they are traveling. It's measuring their heart rate and their workload, the intensity that they're working at. And you can use all that data and all of those metrics to determine whether a guy is getting fatigued or not, whether a guy is at an increased risk of injury or not. And that is a lot more reliable than innings. <laughs> he has thrown this many innings. You know, I think number of pitches certainly is still a good one if you want to go, you know, via that, right? Like anytime you're getting over 30 pitches in an inning is still an issue. Um, and obviously, like you just don't see guys going much beyond 100 pitches anymore in, in regular season starts. But I just think that like, you know, when you think about how many innings Nate Pearson is going to throw this year, I know that's not what you were saying, but you just kind of jarred it in my memory. Yeah. Forget it. Don't worry about innings because Blue Jays are going to look at velocity, release point, spin rate, and and recovery. They're going to measure his power and strength in between outings. They're going to see how he's doing in the gym and just how his body's responding to things. And they're going to let that data and that information inform how far, how hard they push Nate Pearson and when they give him a little bit more time for recovery. Yeah, in terms of innings, I was thinking about this the other day in the context of almost like a a relay race, like for for running. Imagine the teams had like a nine inning, or let's call it like a nine kilometer relay race that they had to run. And you're trying to run it as quickly as you possibly can. Well, if you're trying to do that, and this is more game to game than season to season, but if you're trying to do that, you might have your starting pitcher, if he's your best guy, you might have him go like three, four, five kilometers, but you're not going to have him go all nine. Does that make any sense? Because that, that kind of popped into my head the other day. Sure. Yeah. Are, are you, is this the new uh, grocery store analogy? I, I don't like... know if I'm willing to go quite that far. <laughs> the grocery store stuck with us for a few weeks there. But it's, it's basically you a get into seeing... like the, the optimization of who runs which leg of the race, right? Like which one's most important? We go down that road as well. Yeah. I, I don't have this one necessarily finessed. But it, it seems to me that... Basically, what you're trying to do in the course of a game is you're trying to make sure that guys are going all out. And if they can't go all out anymore, you're pulling them. Yeah. Do you think someday we get to a world where some team is like, you know what, we're going to actually do it in reverse. We're going to have our closer pitch the first. And then we're going to have like a one inning guy for the second. And then like, you know, a two or three inning guy for the third, fourth, fifth. And then our starter's coming in. (laughs) And our starter's going to log the last four innings. There's no reason you couldn't, right? Right. Like as we've said before, the first inning is high leverage, you know? So you can, you can keep trotting out your, your elite pitchers. You know, we would call them relievers, but in this case, they're just pitchers. You can trot them out in the early innings. And then if you have a big lead or you're trailing by a lot, in comes Tanner Roark, you know, bring in, bring in someone who can log five or six innings when the leverage is essentially lower. 
Yeah. They're not starters anymore. They're finishers. You know, Tim right. Rower comes in to finish the last four to five innings and Kirby Yates pitches the first. It's, it's like Yates crazy. in the first, Romano in yeah. the second. Chatwood is going to get you the third and fourth. And then five, six, seven, eight would be your starter. And then maybe you need one more guy for the ninth if you have a ninth. I mean, if in a one game context, it makes sense. That's why teams do it in the wild card game. That's why teams do it in game seven of the playoffs. It, obviously, in the course of a full season, you can get too cute. There's a limit to it. But definitely, like, you know, as we kind of talk about on an ongoing basis here, like when you're thinking about the way teams structure their pitching staffs, I think that's something to, to kind of keep in mind. They're very open minded with that kind of thing. Last bit before we take the break, just on the injury front, George Springer was a little bit banged up uh, earlier this week, a little bit of an, an, an abdominal issue, and he was scratched from a start, scratched from the lineup. And then, like, literally the next day, it was live BP, full workout, playing defense in an inch-a-squad game, and then, uh, you know, this afternoon, he, like, crushed a ball over the left field fence. So looks like he's fine. But I would say the one thing to take away from this um, would be to expect more of these sort of minor bumps and bruises. And each time a player pops up on injury report with a minor knock at this time of year is not cause for major concern. Players right now are kind of acclimatizing or reacclimatizing to just the daily rigors and demands of baseball again. And these small injuries are going to crop up as the body kind of gets used to that volume and that workload again. Considering it's March 11th, the club isn't going to ask anybody to push through that. These are, you know, small little injuries and knocks that players would very, very frequently play through during the regular season. But when it's like, you know, still three weeks left in spring training, it makes absolutely no sense to play through even the most minor of, of physical ailments right now. Like, don't risk it in a game. Don't put that guy out there. Give him the rest of the day off. Let him get over it so that he can come back two days later and hit a bomb over the left field fence. Exactly. I mean, imagine if the Blue Jays had done it the other way and they had yeah. said, hey, you know what, George, like, I don't care if you're if your core is hurting, you are getting out there, we just paid you $150 million. And you are playing this grapefruit league game, you're getting on this bus, and you're going to play like that would be absurd. That would make no sense whatsoever. It would be total mismanagement of their most important player. And obviously, they made the very clear and easy decision to let him rest. And the important thing is that George Springer comes to them and says, like, hey, I've actually kind of got like a little bit of a knock right now. Like, that's what's important is the communication from the player. And that's what you want to see. Because he very easily could have just been like, oh, I'll just play through it, whatever. I'll just grind through this. Like, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Um, and you want to like get that line of thinking out of your organization and out of your culture. You want to have like an open dialogue with your players so that they bring this stuff up. Because if he does go out there and play through it, Maybe he makes it worse, right? Or maybe because he's compensating for it, he actually injures another part of his body. And now he's got two injuries, right? Like, look, man, last year, you know, Marcus Simeon carried a, an abdominal injury, same deal, into the regular season. And you can look at his numbers early in the year. No bueno. Like, not great. Finally, he gets healthy midseason. And he is regular old Marcus Simeon again for, you know, the second half and then like goes absolutely ham in the playoffs. So at this time of year, like it just makes sense to knock out any injury that you pick up, any little minor ailment instead of carrying it into the regular season and letting it compound. There is six whole months of regular season in which to beat up your body and let injuries compound and go into the postseason when, even though we don't know it because players don't really talk about it, I think 
a lot of guys that we're watching in the postseason are hurt with like yeah. not just minor injuries, but like pretty serious <laughs> yeah. injuries. Remember Anthony Rizzo a couple of years ago? Like he could barely walk. Yeah. You've got guys going out there playing through all kinds of stuff. So there, there'll be time for that in September and October. Right now, you sort this stuff out and, and you enter opening day as healthy as possible. Yeah. And and exactly. I mean, there is a time to to be clear. Like I'm not saying like you always pull pull back and you always operate cautiously there is absolutely a time to play through injury if you're a major league baseball player there are times where that's your job and there are times where even someone as important as george springer maybe especially someone as important as george springer should be playing through injuries and that time would be the playoffs or maybe the final week of the regular season and other than that you should probably rest yeah kevin pilar played with like a broken wrist or a broken bone in his hand for a while like if fans knew the stuff Aaron Sanchez pitched through over the years, even like uh, Tasker Hernandez last September, that like, came back very quickly from a pretty real injury, probably not feeling anywhere close to even like 75% when he was taking the field towards the end of the year and, and into the postseason. But look at Jordan Romano trying to, you know, rush yeah. back from his, he wanted to come back his finger thing last year. Julian Merriweather is as well. So yeah, there's a time and a place for that. And that time and place is not now. Uh, let's step away. But when we come back, we're going to play a little game of uh, fact or fiction, UJ's spring training edition. And we continue on At The Letters. It continues on at the letters Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Mike Tassoni and Christian Ryan. Uh, ben, not a whole lot going on right now with Blue Jays spring training. This has been like a really, really low storyline spring, which I'm sure the Blue Jays are pretty happy about. Those of us in the media <laughs> wish there was a bit more meat on the bone to chew on. That's why we end up with like frameworks like what we're about to, to do right now. Yeah. And that is Blue Jays spring training fact or fiction that's right uh, we have five topics picked out five assumptions heading into the season and ben and i are going to assess whether it's a fact whether it's fiction and cast ahead a little bit you ready ben all set yeah this is this is good we don't usually get to do uh, you know very different things on atl aside from the over-unders so hopefully everyone else can can join in play along from your uh couch or your run or wherever you happen to be listening number one Kevin. There is a very interesting kind of cottage industry on the internet right now of folks just clamoring to predict Kevin Biggio's demise as an offensive ball player, sometimes as a defensive one as well, but mostly as an offensive ball player. He has struggles hitting high velocity. They're deadening the baseball and a number of his home runs could be classified as wall scrapers. Uh, you know, his offensive profile is, is too reliant on walks. And if pitchers are in the zone, more off of high velocity, he's going to fall off the cliff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Ben, fact or fiction? Kevin Biggio will struggle offensively in 2021. Fiction. I just don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, anecdotally, like I've seen Kevin Biggio take Garrett Cole fastballs to deep center field. We also know that he's going to be in a very hitter-friendly ballpark to start the year and a very hitter-friendly ballpark later in the year, whether that's Toronto Rogers Center or Buffalo Salem Field. We also know that in his first two seasons, basically one full season, if you add it up, 159 games, he's got an OPS of 798, OPS plus of 116. This is a guy with power, 24 home runs. I don't see any reason to predict that he would be much worse. And already he's a good offensive player, good defensive player. 
I'm not predicting, you know, MVP type finishes for him. I think Kevin Biggio is a good player. I'm, I think that he will continue to be a good player. What do you think? No, I agree with you. And just based off of watching his career, like I, th- I think there is like some merit to the arguments people make about, you know, you look at the struggles against high velocity, right? And I, uh, where did I pull it? I pulled it up here uh, somewhere, but here we go. So in 2020, 222 of the 1,112 pitches Kevin Biggio saw, so that's right around 20%, were 94 miles per hour or higher. Okay, so I, that is you know pretty good velocity. 20% of the pitches he saw, his slash line, he hit 135, got on base 250, slugged 308, weighed on base of 251. Not great, right? So I think there is reason to suggest that he has trouble against premium velocity. Sure. And then you can look at greater trends across baseball and say, well, yeah, like everybody is throwing harder now. Like average fastball velocity has progressively gone up year over year, you know, over the last like decade and a half. And it's like not stopping, it's not going anywhere. Every bullpen now is just a collection of high octane arms uh, coming out of it. So Kevin Bidge is probably going to see a lot more velocity going forward. You look at the sort of exit velo stuff, the hard hit rates, the expected stats based off of how well he strikes the ball. Yeah, it's not super impressive, right? Like it's not, you know, on the baseball savant tabs there, I would bet most of those stats are going to be blue towards the left instead of red to the right. It doesn't make for a nice little you know, screen grab on Twitter, right? Where you put up that one of what, you know, pick your player, Alejandro Kirk or whatever, in this super small sample. It's all bright red and 99th percentile or whatever. So yeah, that that's all fair and that's all good. But what's Kevin Biggio done over his first two years as a pro? You said it, right? Last year, like over a 120 OPS plus. This is a guy who, if you talk to people, you know, when he was like at single A, like five years ago, whenever that was, would say, yeah, word guy. Not going to be a, a big leaguer, not going to be an above average contributor at the big leagues. Continued to get better, continued to find a way to improve, worked like really, really hard and has maximized his tools. Sure, he doesn't hit the ball as hard as Vladimir Guerrero Jr. does, and he probably never will. Sure, his home runs aren't going to be 450 foot, you know, freaking bombs onto Neptune. Like, that's just not the guy that he is. He has one of the best eyes in baseball. Like he has one of the best understandings, like maybe even actually the best understanding yeah. of the strike zone in baseball. It's up like, there. Yep. You had the stat in over-unders last year, right? The guy doesn't chase. You won that over-under saying he is going to be <laughs> the best player in yeah. baseball at not swinging at pitches outside the zone. And he was. Like if I told the double A story on the podcast before, it's like this famous story yes. in the Blue Jays organization yeah. about at double A in New Hampshire, Kevin Biggio took a called third strike that he thought was a ball. It was called third strike, goes back to the dugout and he's like, check the track, man. There's no way that was a strike. They come back, whatever nerd they have down there, look at the track, man. And it was like, yep, yeah, no, nope, sorry. Track man says it was a strike. I don't know what to tell you. And Biggio was like, the track man's wrong. The track man is not properly set up. There's no way that was a strike. And everybody just kind of rolled their eyes. And then the next day, they went and checked the track man, and it was not properly calibrated. He was, he was right. Kevin Biggio knew the track man was off. Like, he was better than the computer at judging the strike zone. When robo-umps show up in, like, two or three years in the big leagues, Kevin is going to walk, like, 200 times. So this is all to say, I trust this guy to get the most out of what he's really good at. 
at the big league level and to find a way to be an above average offensive contributor. I don't think he needs to be a 150 OPS plus guy. If he is 110 to 120 OPS plus as he has been over his first two years of his career and he's playing like four or five positions as he has been and he is like rarely getting thrown out on the base pass coming up with sneaky steals and he's bringing all the intangibles that he brings off the field as a player i think that's a really valuable piece of a contending good possibly championship caliber team and i do not think kevin bishio is going to struggle offensively in 2021 the way people do yeah no i i agree with that i think um you know you look at like I said, 159 major league games in his career, he's been worth almost five war, 4.9 by baseball reference. It's really good, you know, like that's really, really exceptional. So if I'm going to pick guys who I think are going to regress, it's probably not going to be the player who in his first full season has hit really well, 24 home runs. That includes his struggles against high velocity. And yet he still produces. So are there players who can hit the high fastball better? Yes, but I still think, Biggio can be average to above average hitter consistently. Just watch him come back this year better than he's been in the past because that's what he's done every offseason, every season of his career. He's he's come back better. Like this is a guy who had like a 375 OBP last year. Like, yeah. so that's very valuable. He's a good player. On a club. And the way the Blue Jays lineup is going to be most nights, like you could have that out of your, like your seven, eight, nine hole. And that's great because he's getting on base for the top of the lineup when it's like Springer, Semyon, Bo, Vlad, Lord is coming up, uh, Teoscar coming up. Like that is that is fantastic. And then you just add in all the intangible stuff too. And like you talk to the people around the team who are like, you know, the that clubhouse is Kevin Biggio's clubhouse. Like that is a real leader in that space. And that is a guy who people look up to and people learn from and who really kind of very, very quietly like makes this team go and sets the tone in the clubhouse. I just think somehow he is still like underrated and undervalued as a big league ball player. I don't think he's ever going to win an MVP. He's probably not ever going to be an all-star, although watch him like prove me wrong, just like he's proved yeah, lots of people know. wrong. But I think he's a really, really valuable piece of this team. I could see him being an all-star. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe that's uh, one to watch. I guess it's for. not that hard to be an all-star. No. <laughs> it's <laughs> not like in the NBA where it's like, whoa. But yeah, uh, yeah. it's been a lot of suspect all stars over the yeah, years. Yeah, I think uh, it's usually what seventy or eighty players make the all star team. So it's kind of like the top ten percent. Yeah, you know, if you think that there's like, what seven seventy no seven eighty on rosters. So no, it should be like an all MLB team at the end of the year. Yeah, well, there is. They started. Is there? Yeah, yeah. But we should hold that with the veneration that we hold yes. the all-star selection like when i pull up your baseball reference just say yeah. like first team all in mlb that year arden man if you're waiting for consistency in the way that we uh, value yeah. baseball players <laughs> like you're talking about a sport that has all of fame with all kinds of different standards and all kinds of moving targets so i don't i don't know you might be waiting a while topic number two kirby yates as the blue jays closer and this is kind of based off of his comments the other day you wrote about them in sportsnet.ca where he indicated uh the closer's job is mine to lose uh which is uh yeah pretty interesting for a guy to come out and say that that would sort of suggest that he has some assurances that that is the case or he has strong reason to believe that is the case so you start the last one i'll start this one kirby yates is the blue jays closer i think that's fact to begin the year, certainly, I think that he's going to be given that ninth inning job. And, you know, I think that across the game, 
eventually you're going to see clubs evolve to more of a target the leverage type of bullpen deployment. We might see fewer kind of true closers, like the ninth inning is mine, like fewer of those guys. And we'll just see more of these kind of staffs where you, you know, maybe if you have a Kirby Yates who has like this incredible two pitch mix and gets a ton of swinging strikes, maybe he's a guy who you actually use like in the sixth when you got, you know, a couple of runners on and, and you're in a jam and it's like a one run game. And you know, you're, there's, there's a ton of leverage there. I think we'll, we'll see that evolution continue, but I think for the blue Jays, opening day 2021 and for as long as Kirby Yates is healthy and effective he is this club's closer I agree I agree and you know you look broadly at the sport anyone who plays fantasy baseball knows like it's impossible to pin down who the closers are at any given moment in time like it is it's a very very much a moving target because you know whereas maybe 10-15 years ago you had your Bob Wickmans and your Todd Joneses and these guys who would get 35-40 saves just kind of by virtue of being like the guy like the veteran guy and, you know, it was simple because you just had one guy per team. But now, if you're, like, not that great, you're not going to be a closer. Kirby Yates, however, has the potential, when healthy, to be great, to be next level, to be one of those guys that absolutely deserves the ball and gets the ball in the ninth inning. And, of course, that's an overly reductive way of looking at it. It's not that simple. It's not just the ninth inning. But I think the Blue Jays will use him in that traditional way to start the season. Yeah, I think Jordan Amano will have his opportunities in the yeah. ninth. I think Rafael Delis will have his opportunities in the ninth. Like, you're going to get to, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen in the season, but you're going to get to a point where it's like bullpens on fumes, had a couple oh, yeah. of short starts, somebody, you know, starter got hurt and somebody got rocked. And, you know, like we've got a few guys on the IL and that guy was like just options. We can't really bring him back yet. And, I mean, you're going to run into these scenarios where you're going to see all kinds of strange names being called upon to, to kind of close. But I think that the, the majority of save opportunities will be there for, for Kirby Yates. Topic number three, Stephen Matz. Stephen Matz, pretty impressive so far in spring. You know, a little bit of an under-the-radar acquisition for the Blue Jays. Uh, kind of coming late in the offseason there in, in a trade with the New York Mets. Doesn't get brought up too much when everybody kind of talks about, you know, the rotation options and the pitchers that the Blue Jays are going to be relying on to make starts, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, Ross Stripling and, you know, a lot of talk about, uh, you know, what's Julian Merriweather going to be and uh, Kay and Hatch and et cetera. Not that many people talking about Steven Matz. So, so Ben, I'll put it to you. Steven Matz is an answer for the Blue Jays in the rotation. Fact or fiction? Huh. I mean, he is an answer. He is an answer in the sense that he will begin the season in the rotation, I believe. Now, will that be a good thing? That is another question. That's the real question, I think. And I don't have a ton of confidence yet that that is the case. We'll see. This is a player last year who allowed home runs to 10% of the hitters that he faced. Now, home runs can be very volatile. They can switch a lot from year to year. You might say they're not the most predictive thing. And his strikeout and walks were there. So that's a good thing. But I just, I still go back to the point that this guy was a very hittable pitcher last year, which is the most recent information we have that really counts because spring training doesn't really count unless he's throwing 99, which he's not. So I just think that Steven Matz is going to begin the season in the rotation. But if we were to set an over under right now for where his ERA sits, like I, I wouldn't go a lot below 4.6, you know, I'll, I'll put it that way. 2019, Steven Matz, ERA, over uh, 32 outings, 30 starts, 4-2, Ben, 4-2. That was 2019. So do you buy it? Do you believe that there's a 4-2 ERA coming? 
you uh, skirted the game there. So you're saying fiction, by the way. Yes, right? I'm you're saying fiction. fiction. Yes, I'm saying fact, baby. All right. Uh, I'm betting on the stuff. That's okay. what I'm betting on. Like when the Blue Jays acquired Steven Matz, generally like fans are just kind of like, eh, what you know, like I don't think anybody was that excited about it and especially because it came at a time when you know Rizzi is still out there and walker was still out there and you know it's, it was very clear the blue jays needed a rotation upgrade and i think there was a lot of like this is it see matt's is really good stuff big league premium stuff like steven matt's is a big league pitcher he has stuff that just does not grow on trees and i remember kind of looking at the you know just some of the peripheral stuff and looking at you know the, like you said the strikeout rates the walk rates looking at his velocity and his movement his pitch mix you know how how effective his changeup and curveball can be and I was like man this like this guy might you know might be solid and like admittedly I like betting on stuff I like betting on the Tyler Chatwoods and Robbie Ray's of this world right like I just you know I like believing that these guys can kind of figure it out develop and do something different and sort of harness like some pretty innate ability and traits that not everybody has i admit that i typically root for those guys but then you look at steven matt's take them out the other day in a spring training game and it's like hey you know dot and 95 mile an hour fastballs around the zone and good mix of change-ups and curveballs he had like nine swinging strikes in an outing that couldn't have been any longer than 45 pitches because that's what guys are throwing right now that is impressive you know and look like that's like when he's locating I just think that that fastball with the changeup and curveball is all he needs to be effective at, at the big league level. You know, you kind of look at where things have gone wrong for him in 2020 in particular. It was just kind of like the disaster outings. Like it was that when things went wrong, they snowballed in a hurry. Like it wasn't, you know, single, single, okay, I got a ground ball to get out of it. It was like single, single, bomb, double another bomb. You know, like it just like... They were meltdowns, essentially. <laughs> and this, so which, which side are you arguing? No, I, what I'm saying, I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. What I'm saying is that that is like a mental thing. Like that's a yeah. composure thing, you know? Mm-hmm. That's approach, that's compartmentalizing, that's turning the page, that's getting over bad results. That's not letting things spiral. It's not an ability issue. Like it's not a stuff issue. The stuff is there. So if you can make an approach adjustment, and if you can learn to arrest damage... A little bit better i think you could really improve the results to that end like i kind of hope we see him pitch in texas right because you want to talk about the guys who are going to be like impacted the most by the return of crowds which is a thing certainly like we i heard like ross stripling was talking about the other day pitching in you know a florida minor league ballpark with like a thousand people there saying man i felt that adrenaline from the crowd that's like a thousand you know octogenarians <laughs> sitting out there imagine being in texas with forty thousand people like it's going to be an adjustment for a lot of players who went an entire season without anybody in the stands so i think that's going to be an interesting test for steven Matz if he does pitch against the rangers there with in front of a, a packed house and so like you know I'm, I'm i'm willing to bet on him i guess is what i'm saying all right, so let's let's be a little bit more specific here. So Zips has him at 4.65. Just look this up for an ERA, which seems yeah. like a pretty reasonable kind of over under point. And man, like, is that I just, so bad these days? Really? No, it's not. It's not bad. Right? It's not yeah. bad, and that's passable. Like you can have that in your rotation, and that's is your fourth or fifth starter. That's okay. Which is you know, and this not to not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but this is why like the Jays are okay with their rotation. They're okay, but to me. When you combine hitter's environment that he's in, the struggles that he had last year, the very reasonable objective forecast from Zips of 4.65, like 
I don't know. Like I'm kind of thinking, you know, four, seven, four, eight, like that's kind of where I would peg him. Sounds like we got an over under already, buddy. I like it. We have to, we have to do this. (laughs) So this guy ties into the next one. So let's just spin right into it. Fact or fiction. The Blue Jays should have signed Jake Odorizzi. I think you took the last one. So I'll take this one. Jake Odorizzi ended up getting, and it was one of those complicated, like CBT avoiding or sorry, salary cap avoiding deals but it ended up being like 23 and a half over two essentially like 23 and a half guarantee over two yeah. to third year like player option yeah this is a buyout that's half of the player option and it's such a weird scenario it's seeing, like the like, new deal that they're doing this offseason yeah well and it's so weird seeing both players and teams like thinking like oh yeah like players being like yeah let's help these teams like stay under the tax but there is incentive there for the player as well. Like totally. what a sign of a just strange and broken system that's going to be completely overhauled going into next year. But anyway, that's beside the point. 23 and a half over two, essentially. So for the Blue Jays, it would have been 26 over two, right? Is that fair? Uh, I don't know. You don't I, don't, know? I think for the Blue Jays, and this is speculation, so I'm not, um, this is not a reported thing here, but yeah. uh, I don't know. This is Jake Odoriz. He's a guy who knows Charlie Montoyo, who lived or lives in the Tampa area, which is where the Blue Jays train and are going to play. I mean, this is someone, in my opinion, probably would have taken what he got from the Astros or maybe less to sign with the Jays, if I had to guess. Interesting. If I had to guess. That would change my answer because I was operating under the assumption that, you know, there would be a little bit of a tax paid, all things considered. I don't know. I don't think so. Would you have done like one year 15 with Jake Odorizzi? You know? But I have done one year right? 15. Because so he, what he ended up getting 223 yeah. and a half. So to get him on a one year, right? Do you have to get 15 I think, and 16? I think he would have maybe taken that. I don't know. Like yeah. my sense was, and this is reported. So now we're going off of stuff okay. that I was told. Like my sense was that the Jays, as the offseason progressed into its later stages, did not want to go multiple years. They right, really value the flexibility that they have, and they were wary of going multiple years on the pitchers who remained, like a Taiwan Walker, Jay Rizzi, or James Paxton. So that that much, I'm I'm certain in saying. Now, what it would have taken to sign Rizzi, I'm not sure. So then, what would a one year deal have had to look like, considering he was able to get two years, twenty three and a half, right? So it would have had to be, you know, what I don't know, whatever. Here's the thing. I think it's fine. The Blue Jays should have signed Jake Odorizzi, I think, is fiction. It's fine. The Blue Jays like are going to have plenty of time to figure out just what they have in this pitching staff to figure out what Anthony Kay can be, what Trent Thornton can be, a guy we don't talk about enough, what Thomas Hatch can be. And look, if it doesn't go that great i promise you like ropes will be short like i don't think that you're gonna see like you know tj zoic get rocked in two consecutive outings and then get a third fourth fifth sixth opportunity like i just think that you know while we're like the blue jays are gonna be cycling players up and down quite a bit this year and while you know like if the blue jays there's just like the transaction page is going to be well populated oh yeah this year i just think that you know leashes are not going to be that long even on established guys like tanner roark man like look if he if the velo's not there and if he's given up crazy amounts of bombs and getting yeah. lit up every time out you know late april i don't think that he has a long future with no. the blue jays at that point if the blue jays went out and given jake odorizzi whatever it would have taken to bring him in right that's a, a pretty big commitment for a guy who yeah maybe he's good in your rotation maybe he gets hurt 
Maybe he underperforms. Maybe that money could be a lot better used at the trade deadline to take on some salary in a deal for a pitcher who you know is like healthy and performing well and who can impact you right away. Once you've just gotten a, a sense of like what your depth pitching can be for you this year. It could even happen before the trade deadline, man. Like if there's an opportunity to add somebody like in May or June, maybe the Blue Jays pull the trigger at that point, you know? So I like, I, I'm totally fine with the the strategy that they've taken with the flexibility, finding out what they have internally now, and then looking to address this midseason. I both agree and disagree with you here. So I'm going to try to explain exactly how, because I think basically I agree with everything you said. So it's not like there's some sort of point that I would disagree with. But I also think that if they had signed Jay Cotorizzi, I'd be like, that was a pretty good move. Can't help, you know, like can't, help, can't hurt to have more pitching. And just for the fun of it, partly, I will take the other side. And I'll say that if they had done a front-loaded two-year deal where most of it's in 21, some of it's in 22, I think that could have been a win. I think that could have helped them. They would be a better team. You know, that certainly wouldn't have hurt. So, you know, I, that's where I see the case. Jay Cotorizzi is a good pitcher, good major league pitcher. You need those to get through a long season. So that's the side where I'll disagree with you. Now, the, the part where I'll, I will agree with you is that there are going to be opportunities to add to this pitching staff midseason. And if you look at last year, look at the price they paid for Robbie Ray. You know, look at the price they paid for Taiwan Walker. How many people listening? I'll be impressed if people actually know this. But, you know, what did the Blue Jays give up for Taiwan Walker? You know, can you, can you think of it off the top of your head? Probably not because it wasn't that much. Travis Bergen, who they traded for Robbie Ray, is now back in the organization. Yeah. You know, that was literally a rental. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking at that, if you think that you can get to July, it's still COVID. As we said, there are going to be teams that are trying to sell. There are going to be teams that are trying to shed salary. So if you're the Blue Jays, you know those opportunities are going to exist. And so by passing on order, Rizzi, they keep their options open there, which teams love options. There's nothing they love more than options and flexibility. So they have that open and they can see what they have in the meantime so i, I don't i don't know I, I i've kind of argued both sides here and spun around in circles but uh, does that make any sense arden where i kind of uh, you know basically think it would have been good to sign order rizzy but they're still okay yeah it makes sense and that you haven't picked factor fiction yeah <laughs> i will pick i what, what was the statement initially uh the blue jays should have signed jake order rizzy then i'll take fact i'll take fact i will yeah. i will land on fact I think fiction for, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, a lot of the reasons you just cited. Uh, <laughs> look, man, you know, you get to midseason and if the Giants are like looking up at the Padres and Dodgers who are running away with that division and, you know, the Giants are running out this entire lineup of like 32-year-old retreads and it's not going well for them at all. Uh, hey, what's Kevin Gosman really going to cost? at that point who hey Farhan like who do you like in our minor league system who's kind of far off and not one of you know our, our main dudes you can have them right we saw the Blue Jays do it last year even Ross Stripling right like Kendall Williams and uh blanking on the other name that that went in that Just one kind of but, telling right exactly yeah. it's gonna be fine uh the Blue Jays are, are gonna acquire pitching this this season I'm, I'm pretty certain and I don't think that not having Jake Odorizzi's production over April and May is going to kibosh this team's chances of reaching the postseason. Final one. Rowdy Tellez is the odd man out of the Blue Jays lineup. Or you could phrase it like Rowdy Tellez will not see enough plate appearances this year. Rowdy Tellez is going to sit a lot. However you want to however you want to phrase it. Fact or fiction, Ben? Total fiction. Total fantasy land fiction. He's going to hit as much as he needs to hit. 
You know, it's, I think it's that simple. It's like they're in such a good spot right now to have 10 players for nine spots. It's rare. It probably won't even last another two weeks, right? Like exactly. something is going to come up. So total fiction, that's enough. I think I've dunked on that one and I'll, I'll <laughs> let you your turn. No, yeah, there's a decent chance that on opening day, it won't be 10 players for nine spots. <laughs> come opening day, it might be eight players for nine spots. Exactly. Like, uh, and certainly at various points throughout the season, like the Blue Jays' depth is going to be tested. So yeah, this is a great spot to be in. Um, I do think like Roddy Tellez should play regularly. Like I think he's earned that, right? Like I think a lot of the adjustments that he made at the end of last season were like very real and very tangible. And I think he's just kind of a guy who's just taking a little bit of time to like figure out big league pitching and to like figure out his strengths in the majors. And maybe to like even just, you know, just be a bit more relaxed at the plate and not try to hit the ball 500 feet like every, you know, every swing, like and then not expand. And it's like it's similar to like a Justin Smoke sort of adjustment and evolution that we saw where it was like, you know, he was just trying to hit a home run with every swing. And all of a sudden he just kind of, learn to trust his approach, trust his power, because it's all there. We saw him in Buffalo last year, Eddie Tellis I'm talking about now, like, you know, smashing friggin' windows in that parking structure and it'd be on the right field wall there. Um, like the power is there and the home runs are going to come and the doubles off the wall are going to come. He just has to trust his approach and not expand and wait for his pitch. And I think we saw some very real improvements there towards the end of last season i think he deserves some leeway to you know some regular playing time in order to demonstrate that he can carry them over to this year it's certainly been noticeable through the zooms we've had with him just like his mentality and his confidence um and some of the improvements that he's made i think on the the mental side of the game i kind of ask around at this time of year with certain people like hey who's your breakout guy for this year you know like who do you think is going to be you know a huge factor that maybe doesn't look it right now. And the name Rowdy Tellez has come up a few times as like predictions from within the Blue Jays organization as a possible breakout this year. So I think he has to play regularly and I think he will. And I think the whole playing time thing isn't going to be an issue. I think you get to the end of like the first week of uh, the regular season if everybody's healthy and everybody will have gotten plenty of play appearances. Everybody will have played plenty of positions. Like I, I think it's going to be fine. Yeah, and I, th I thought Nick Ashbourne did a good job of kind of outlining how this might look in a piece of Sportsnet this week, where it's just like, you're going to do it based on matchups a lot of the time. Like the day that Hyunjin Ryu is pitching, probably not going to put Vlad Guerrero Jr. at third base. You know, you want to have a really good defensive infield that day. But if it's Tanner Roark, okay, maybe Vladdy does play third. And maybe you really want to have a good defensive outfield. So Teoscar's DHing, and the pieces just kind of fit together. So I think that matchup based stadium based right yankee stadium you want your lefty bats in the lineup if it's a big you know huge park and you're in the coliseum all right maybe you go for a gap to gap hitter and that's a day that joe panic is, is in the lineup like you can just adjust and make sure that guys are getting the reps while maximizing their abilities on a given day yeah, you know what you didn't even mention is the handedness of the right. starter of the other team, which like it's funny, right? You see everybody's lineup predictions. It's like this is what the Blue Jays do against lefties, and this is what they'll do against righties. It's like the last thing teams think about these days is whether it's a righty or lefty on the mound for the other team, right? Like you said, you're tailing tailoring your defense to your pitcher. You are thinking about the ballpark you're playing in. You're thinking about the repertoire of the guy you're going up against. What's he throw? Does he throw a lot of sinkers to this quadrant of the zone? Well, like, hey, we got a guy in Randall Grishuk who like crushes sinkers in this quadrant of the zone. So he's going to be in our lineup, you know? Like, 
what type of sort of like arm angle and slot does he come out of? Like, what's the plane the ball comes in on? Because we have hitters whose swing planes and swing paths actually match up really well against that. That's what, uh, you know, kind of matchup based lineup decisions look like right now. Like it, it has very little often to do with whether it's a lefty or righty on the mound. Like it's still a factor. I'm not, you know, you can't just throw it out, but there, you know, it is a, a small slice of the pie in that decision. Someone should build like a public lineup construction tool, you know, cause it really, it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. enough to just look at lefty righty, you know, there should be, cause teams have this sort of thing, right. Where it's like, what are the inputs? Like what are the variables that matter? Defensive orientation, obviously you're going to, as you said, type of pitcher that you've, that you've got health is one. See, that's, that's one that teams themselves right. are going to know um, ballpark that you're in. So all these different things play in and that's how you can end up with, you know, last year, 60 games, 56 lineups. That is, it's not tinkering. That's just like adapting to the realities of a major league season. Yeah. We just don't have the, the, the information on that level, right? About, you know, swing pass and about who does, you know, particularly well against this type of spin or that type of stuff. Like we could kind of like reverse engineer it. Sounds like a lot of work. It does. And plus, we can still <laughs> criticize them from afar. Like last year, even when I know yeah, they had reasons show. for yeah. it. I know that was like, that was the that was the one time I don't usually try to criticize lineup decisions because it's like it doesn't make that much of a difference, really. Yeah. What what impact do you think really the lineup decision, like the batting order, you know, positioning makes on a game? Oh, like, on a game, it's like very very small. In the course minuscule. of a season, right? yeah. In the course of a season, it might be. I think it would be in the dozens of runs, but certainly yeah. not in the hundreds of runs. It's kind of like, it's some of these things that we all have to kind of unlearn from like, you know, the way baseball used to be analyzed back in the day. Mm -hmm. Just like, you're even thinking about like how much a manager could impact a win and a loss. Like how much do you yeah. think a managerial in-game decision-making impacts wins and losses these days even? Yeah, not, right? not a ton. I mean, also the bar has risen so high. So it's almost like when you think about replacement level, right? The replacement level for managers now is really high on a tactical level. So anyone you're hiring, by definition, these people are, are very savvy when it comes to these sorts of decisions. They're familiar with them, comfortable with them. If, even if they're not experts in the tactical nuts and bolts, they're at least open to it in the same way that Charlie Montoyo would be. So, you know, you compare, like, say, Tony La Russa, right, who's managing now and he was managing in the 80s. He's the same person, but his competition has gotten so much better. Like Aaron Boone would crush the peers that Larusa had when he first broke into the league. And that's yeah. not, it's not a like Earl Weaver is a baseball genius in a lot of ways, but it's just, it's a product of where you are in your time. It's not a, it's not a comment on the intelligence or, you know, ability of those people. It's just the sport has evolved. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's percentages, man. Like every team is just trying to put their players and their team in a position where the odds are a little bit more in their favor. Yeah. Sometimes you're only moving that like a couple of percentage points, right? Like sometimes you're taking it from, you know, 52, 48 to like, you know, 54, uh, 46. Those are the big ones, <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's kind of like what you're doing. And that's kind of, I think the way that, you know, managerially you kind of think about it as well. Like you're just trying to find those little percentage points and then the rest of it, honestly, 
variance and luck so much of this game is still just like uh did the guy lose it in the sun <laughs> you know did it did it take a weird you know kick off of the rogers center like turf off the seam in the turf or something come back or go off your pitcher's knee and fly off in foul territory like was the throw accurate and did the tag get down in time or did he like just miss him how did the replay go right did like you know did you get a good angle on the replay to confirm the call or not like so much of it is still just luck and variance and just the random whims of this crazy game. And you're just trying to find little ways to give yourself a little bit of an advantage in those scenarios. And then you just have to kind of sit back like the rest of us and watch it play out. I'm excited for it, honestly. Like after not having a full season, <laughs> you know, 60 games, it wasn't yeah. really enough. You know, it's like the, the variance almost played in too much and COVID too, right? Throwing that, you know, not like that's a whole other wrinkle you have teams playing at, at you know in these different configurations like you said with the marlins these random players like i'm excited to see full six month season and and we'll get we'll learn so much more about these players and teams in the course of 162 yeah you're uh like doubling or tripling the sample size yeah right like it's yeah that's huge you know it's just like so much easier to draw conclusions or at least so much more reliable to draw conclusions off of that rather than uh you know just off of 60 games when you can get crazy things like marcus Semyon's season if you play the arbitrary endpoint games with it it looks pretty different at times right but yeah look you were mentioning like steven matt's pretty unimpressive 2020 i don't know if he had 20 more opportunities to take the mound maybe he would have figured something out same thing with tanner roark pretty unimpressive 2020 if he had 20 more opportunities throughout the course of a season and if it was more of a normal season where he was being like extended into starts a bit longer than he was with the blue jays like relying on their bullpen as much as they did last year maybe his stats look a lot different totally i was actually talking to someone it's funny you mentioned roark but i was talking to someone with another organization who was like roark's going to be better than he was like he might actually be halfway decent in a full season and we'll see how that actually looks. But I, I kind of made the prediction, like I could see Rorick having a 4-4-5 ERA through like July. And then maybe things take a turn, you know, we'll see. But um, I would it, think it would be the opposite because of the ballpark maybe. he's going to be in, right? Yeah, and That's true. the tough part for him is that ballpark is not great for a fly ball pitcher. But not like the Rogers Center would be great for a fly no. ball pitcher either, really. So Yeah, but... All that to say, a full season offers guys the chance to to show really what they are offering. It really is more representative, so it'll be fun. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, that's gonna be it for us this week. He's Ben Nicholson Smith. He's on Twitter at the Nicholson Smith. I am Arden Swelling. That is my name on Twitter. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. We thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week on at the Letters.